you. Uh, thanks, Deborah. <clears throat> so, uh, for those who are new or um, you, you weren't with us last weekend, uh, last weekend was our uh, with a weekend we call R and R. Did you know that R and R stands for <clears throat> revival and retreat? Did you guys know that? That's what. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, at least one other person that didn't know that. But R and R stands for revival and retreat. And uh, we had a, just a, a wonderful time of seeking the Lord. And if you were at any of uh, our five worship services, if uh, you could, it would be really helpful if you could go to our website and uh, go fill out an evaluation form. We'd love to do that, to know how we can better that weekend, but also uh, how we can follow up and, and be praying for you as well. I thought um, we might begin our time today by uh, hearing from some of our people um, some of the things that were on their evaluations in terms of the ways that God met them and God blessed them, uh, just so that you might be encouraged. Uh, this is what uh, some of our people said. I was encouraged by the perspective sermon and the perseverance sermon. I've lost friends because of Christ and will lose a couple of new ones most likely. And it's upsetting to the point I considered not following Christ anymore. It helped me remember what life is about and even though it hurts to persevere. Uh, I'm ready to go out and declare his worth to the campus and to the world. Through Friday's sermon, God also made me realize that nothing that I have ever done for him, for his kingdom, or for anyone else was in vain, and that whatever seeds I've planted will germinate someday. God also made me realize that I've persevered through a lot and have grown a lot from the difficult events that I've endured and that I need to continue persevering. I made the commitment to pray more, more intercession for harvest, but I also think that God <clears throat> wants me to invest more in the people around me. Up until now, I've been praying for harvest for the pastors, for the missionaries, and for my house church members, but I did it because that's my nature to do so. I'm going to be even more intentional about it from now on, though. I went to, uh, from now on, though. Another person said, I went into the retreat having certain expectations and with specific petitions, and I saw God start to answer those petitions during the retreat. Uh, I made a commitment to devote, uh, to commit and devote a life of prayer that lifts up and intercedes on behalf of our church. I loved singing the praise and worship music from my youth. It made me remember my young days and how God has been faithful to me throughout the years. Prayer times were sweet as always. He was speaking to me that he loves me even though I fail so many times. And God was saying that he and everything about him is worth my life and all I have to give. And these are some of the things that, that people have said. Spiritual experiences like uh, revival, retreat, like mission trips, like Deborah shared, have oftentimes throughout history been called mountaintop experiences, where you go on top of a mountain. You know, a lot, most religions consider mountains to be the place where you meet with God and you have this grand spiritual awakening and this grand spiritual moment, or you go to meet with your guru and your life is forever changed. Uh, a lot of times these are called mountaintop experiences. So what does the mountaintop have to do with everyday life? I want to bring us from the mountain down to the valley today and to talk about what are we supposed to do now in light of what we saw and what we experienced. For maybe some of you, you weren't at our R&R weekend. That's fine. Um, but uh, I think what we talk about today is going to be applicable and, and relevant to all of us. So Mark chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 31. Mark 9, 1 through 31, it's a large passage, uh, large passage, but I think it's important. It reads like a story because it actually happened. Uh, it is history, something that actually happened about 2,000 years ago. Um, the picture that you're seeing on the screen is a painting by uh, a man named Raphael, which depicts what's going on in this passage that we're about to read. Okay, so Mark chapter 9. And this is God's word. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they, four of them, were all alone. 
There Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Uh, let's put up three shelters, one for you, uh, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. Man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often throwing him in the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, disciples asked him privately, hey, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out, can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is God's word. Um, I don't know if there is a better way to picture what's going on than that painting that was done about 1500 some say that this was Raphael's greatest work called the transfiguration so as you're looking at that let me set the stage right before this uh, Jesus is talking with disciples he's saying hey who do people say I am just trying to find out if they know who he is and they give him a bunch of different answers and Jesus looks at Peter and says who do you say I am and he gives this God divinely inspired uh, words, he says, you are the Christ, he means the chosen one, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are a blessed child of God, Peter, because that wasn't revealed to you by people. Only God could have told you that. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter's name becomes the rock upon him and upon that confession that Jesus is a Christ, the church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so Peter's pretty excited about this. And soon after, Jesus says very clearly, it says very clearly for the first time in Mark, he says, you know what? I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And so Peter, freshly minted from having this new title of the rock, decides, hey, Jesus, <laughs> you're not going to die. Not if I can help it. Not if we can help it. Don't say that, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him who one moment ago was called the rock. The next moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Whenever we block the will of God, we're doing the devil's work. But Jesus saying. So right after that, this transfiguration account happens where Jesus takes his three buddies, Peter, James, and John. They go up on top of a mountain. And on that mountain, this word transfigure is the Greek word metamorphosis, where Jesus is transformed so that all of his glory in that moment, concentrated in that moment, they encounter the glorious one. Jesus' clothes are dazzling white. I'm trying to look for someone wearing white, but there's not many of us in here. There's a few, but uh, it's bleached, like whiter than anyone could ever bleach it. Just shining in all of its purity, in all of its glory. His face was shining. And he provided the only light that they needed on top of that mountain. The glory of God shone in that place. And so... Peter starts talking about building shelters. He says, hey, let's just camp out here, and a cloud comes. And whenever a cloud shows up in the Old Testament, this is the presence of God. And out of that cloud spoke a voice saying, this is my son. Right? Like father, like son, this is God incarnate that you're looking at. He says, listen to him. Right? Don't tell him he's not going to go to the cross. Listen to him. Don't doubt him. Listen to him. Don't question him. Listen to him. And immediately in that place, right, he sees uh, Elijah, Moses, representing the prophets and the law. And as soon as that voice comes, they disappear. And all that's left is Jesus. So when all else fades, he remains. The one whose glory goes beyond all fame. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this amazing mountaintop moment. And so they're talking about it. Jesus says, don't tell anyone until after I've risen from the dead what you've just seen. They're like, what is he talking about? And they go down from the mountain. As they go down from the mountain, they encounter this demon-possessed boy and his father and all these people that have been trying to help him out, and they can't. And they're waiting for Jesus. So what we have, as you look at this painting, you've got... In the top half, you've got verses 1 through 13, the transfiguration. The bottom half, you've got verses 14 through 31, right? You've got the mountain of transfiguration, and then you've got the valley of oppression. You've got the glory of God, and then you've got the absence of God. Two completely opposite pictures. You've got light, and you've got darkness, right? Juxtaposed in one arena. What do we see here? What do we see here? The first thing that we see here is even though we don't want to, even though we may not want to, we have to come down from the mountain. Even though we may not want to, we've got to come down from the mountain. So I was talking with, uh, with Olive this week, and uh, we, we have these conversations a lot. But we're talking about, you know, who's your favorite worship leader? You know, who are you grooving to these days? And and this is what she said. I thought this was like so profoundly insightful. Out of all the worship leaders, there's a, there's a bunch of them you can have, but she said the best ones are the ones who don't distract us from seeing God. The best worship leaders, Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin, this is what Tomlin explicitly says. He says, my role as a worship leader is to bring people into an encounter with God and then to slip out the back door so that all we're left with is just we're seeing God. You know why I love our praise leaders is because they don't need to talk a lot. You know, there's, sometimes we have to talk because they're worship leaders. They're leading us into worship. But more than just being worship leaders, they are lead worshipers. And when you're worshiping, when you encounter God, you don't talk much. You know, when, you're, when you really worship God, this silence falls. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. And so when we worship, we don't need to be bugging each other, talking to each other, oh, you know, being distracted by our phones or by things around us. This is when we're worshiping and we're just locked into the presence of God, there's just a holy sense of God's presence that falls into that place we don't need to talk a lot we just worship ecclesiastes 5 uh, you are god in heaven here i am on earth so i'll let my words be few if i can critique worship sometimes man it's like i don't like when 
worship leaders get up and they just start talking and talking and talking. That's the role of the preacher gets to talk for God. Just take us into God's presence and just leave us in that place. And our guys do a great job and our gals do a great job of doing that. If there's ever a moment and ever an encounter with God where you just need to just be quiet, it's, it's this. The transfiguration. The glory of God in all of its glory. In all of its glory. That's not my phone, is it? Okay, in all of its splendor. It's it just an encounter with God. If there's ever a moment just to, to shut up. Verse 5, Peter says, Rabbi, hey, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, let, me, let me make some tents here. Right, we can go to Home Depot and go to Lowe's. We'll make some tents. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And you just like cringe when you reach Peter. Shh, because he's always doing that. He's a guy that in whatever moment, if there's ever a silence in the room, he feels like he needs to fill that silence with words. And that's okay to do. But when you're in the presence of God like this, Sometimes you just got to be, just be still and know that he's God. So Jesus doesn't say anything here, but if he did, if he were to say something, I think this is what he would say. Two things. Peter, that's a bad idea. I'll tell you two reasons why that's a bad idea. Because Moses and Elijah are not equals with me. The way that you see this, it's like Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Jesus isn't asking them questions. Oh, what was it like when you were walking through the Red Sea? Oh, what was it like when you fought those people on the Mount of Karma? Both of these guys encountered God on a mountain. And both of them, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, which incidentally is also called Mount Sinai. It's the same thing, same mountain. They encountered God representing the, the law, the prophets. All this was pointing to Jesus. Even in this, so, this is all about Jesus. They're declaring the worth of God. And when God speaks, these two disappear. They're like the bridal party that's just kind of there. And all of them are pointing to the beauty of the bridegroom, Jesus. He's like, that's a bad idea because these two are not my equal. But the other reason it's a bad idea is because we came up to the mountain, but we've got to go back down. You know this to be true. This is simple gravity. What goes up? must come down. You know this to be true, right? There's a reason why they went up to the mountain, but the purpose for going up was in order that they might come back down. So I, uh, I haven't been on one for a long time because the older I get, the harder it gets. But back in the day, I used to love riding roller coasters, right? So I used to love riding roller coasters and I could divide uh, roller coasters into two. Right, the ones that I thought were the best. There are fun ones and there are scary ones. Right? Fun ones, you know, they do all kinds of stuff, but they're not really that scary. I, 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 I like the fun ones more than the scary ones, but I always would be one to go on the scary ones also. And the ones that I consider to be scary, not the ones that go through darkness, not the ones where you stand up, not the ones you go backwards, not the one where you're hanging like Superman, not the ones where um, there's loop-de-loop and all that stuff, but the ones with a big drop. Right? Those are the ones that are scary to me. Okay? So the one, okay, there was one in Virginia that an amusement park that we used to go to called King's Dominion, and there was one particular ride there called the Rebel Yell. Okay, this was the scariest of all of them. And so you'd get on that ride, and it was like this, it was a long time, so it was old, and it was rickety, and it would, it would feel like you're going straight up, and you could hear the click, 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 click every time it's going up. And then as you get to the top, and it just kind of stops and lets you hang there for a second. Okay, and then it tilts you down right as you're about to go down. And this is at the point where everybody just starts screaming. They're looking down on this, like, in this, in, over this huge park, over the water and all of these things. And they're just, like, flipping out. This is where coins start falling out of people's pockets. It's where you start to say, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have gone on this ride. And a split second after that, it shoots you screaming, hurtling down, and then it goes and does all this crazy stuff. And I thought to myself, how foolish would it be if I were to get on that thing and say, you know what? I don't want to come down from here. I just want to, I just want to hang out here. That would be silly. Why? Because what goes up always has to come down. And there's a reason why we went up 
the purpose we went up was in order that we might come down. Now think about this. Why is it that in that moment as we're hanging suspended in air, why is it that in that moment for just a couple moments, I don't want to come down? Two reasons why. Because the view from that place is amazing. Because you see things that you've never seen before. But the other reason is because I'm scared to death to go back down. Can I tell you that we do this a lot too. When it comes to these mountaintop experiences, when it comes to retreats, when it comes to revival, when it comes to mission trips, the reason we go up on the mountain, there's a purpose for it, is so that we can come back down. But a lot of times we hang out up there because we say, you know what, Uh, I like the view from up here. Or I'm scared of what happens when I go back down. And so a lot of us, we want to camp out there. And that's what Peter says. He says, you know what? It would be great if we could just hang out up here. But what Peter failed to realize and what we often fail to realize is that there's a reason why God sends us up the mountain. Listen, our faith is energized on the mountain, but it is exercised in the valley. Our faith is taught, we are taught on the mountain, but we are tested in the valley. That's where the examination room is. That's where the rubber meets the road. There's a reason why God took us to those places. I ask our people this, whenever we come back from a mission trip, when we have debrief, I say, ask, just, here's just one question. Why did God take you all the way to another country? What did he take you all the way out there to see? What was it that you couldn't see here that God needed to take you over there in order that you might see? What was it that you weren't listening to? What was it that you couldn't hear here that you could hear over there? For a lot of people who go on missions, it's the cry of lost people. It's the deafening tone of people who are dying without a savior. And they needed to be awakened to that by going out overseas. What was it that God brought you to the mountaintop for? Why did he bring you there? What was he saying? Maybe a lot of us have already forgotten that a week later. Think about that for a second. Why did God bring you to this revival last weekend? Why did God take you to the retreat last weekend? What was God saying to you? What was God saying to you through our guest speaker on Sunday morning? What was he saying to you that you weren't able to hear before this weekend, last weekend? The reason we hear those things is so that we can come back into the valley and live those things out. We have to live out our faith. If there's one thing that Jesus is saying, the reason for the mountaintop is so that we can live out our faith. And when I have been to, uh, to, to Asia with some of the work I do with East Asia missions in a closed country, the one thing that the leader of that organization constantly says is she pleads and she implores with the American church. She says, please live out your faith. There's a, a video that was put online re, uh, this past week. I, I glanced at it, and it was basically from someone in the Middle East, a believer, saying that Muslims are trying to make Christians afraid. And this is the, the chilling statement at the end. He said, is if we are afraid to live out our faith, then our children and our grandchildren are going to be Muslims. They think about that. And so my, these workers in, in East Asia... They say, when, when you go to East Asia, these people, they're willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. For them, there's no point in saying, I'm a Christian if I'm not willing to die. Because to come out as a Christian is to lay your life on the line. That's what Jesus said. Hey, we don't live out our faith very well. That's why God takes us up on the mountain to hear these things, to see these things, to see his glory, to see his word, so that when we come back down, we will live out our faith. You see this in Iraq as, as, as people are, are giving up their lives. 
for the sake of the gospel, our brothers, our sisters. And you realize that when he's talking about Elijah here, he's talking about John the Baptist, he too was beheaded for his devotion to the God that we worship, just like our brothers and sisters in Iraq are. Jesus knows that. He wept over that. But as these men and women of faith, children are living out their faith. You know what's happening is people are coming and turning away from Islam and becoming followers of Christ. Because they see these believers living out their faith and saying the, the, the love and the kindness and the generosity of these persecuted people are causing us to see that the God that they serve is real. And we need to live out our faith, brothers and sisters. We need to live it out. Because it's getting harder and harder for us to do this. It's going to be harder and harder for our children to do this. I pray every day for my kids that they would have conviction biblically, that they would have courage to live out their faith because it's going to be extremely difficult to be a child of God in this world that we live in. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, with whom we're partnering, in California, they've been disbanded, 23 California system schools, because of the fact that they stand by biblical values. And even in what many consider to be a Christian nation. Christianity is being pushed further and further away. And we need to be people who live out our faith. We got to own it. We got to possess it, not just profess it. And it's got to possess us. We go up to the mountain, though we don't want to come down, we've got to, we've got to come down. And so they're coming down from the mountain and immediately they come smack dab as they're going to the other disciples. Verse 14 starts telling us they encounter this demon-possessed man. The disciples tried to cast it out, but they couldn't. And so they come bringing him to Jesus. The second thing that we see, second thing that we see is during times of revival, the enemy is often the first one to awake. Okay, during times of revival, it's often the enemy who's the first one to awake. I have been, ever since uh, Elise, our third, was born, I've been sleeping with Manny and Elijah. And they, our, our kids have never been great sleepers. Um, that's just not an area in which God has poured out his blessing on us. But as so I sleep with Elijah, I sleep with Manny, and Elijah usually wakes up at least an hour before Manny does. And so as we're sleeping, inevitably this happens. Elijah wakes up, and he's kind of like, you know, there's some people, this is cheesy, but some people, we wake up in the morning, they say, good morning, Lord, and they're so excited, morning people. And there's other people that wake up, they say, good Lord, it's morning. They're not morning people. Elijah's not a morning guy. So when he wakes up, he's kicking and screaming. He's kicking the bed, kicking the wall, kicking my face, kicking everything. And he, he's like the rooster. He, when he wakes up, he feels like he needs to wake everybody up. And so he's crying and he's crying and he's crying. And when Elijah wakes up, inevitably I will wake up, Manny will wake up, and sometimes he'll run into the other room and he'll wake Elise and wake Olive up. When one person wakes up, the collateral effect is that others wake up also. It's the same thing spiritually. When the people of God begin to awake, when God begins to move, oftentimes the enemy is the first one to awake. Last night, um, as I met with our shepherds, it's not just last night, but throughout this week, I spoke with many people, many people, many people who said they experienced, they encountered spiritual warfare leading up to a revival retreat weekend. Maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe you've experienced something that kept you from coming to God, but you didn't call it that. There was a, one, of our, one of our sisters was sharing that, she really, really, really wanted to come, just excited and needing God, just desperately needing God. And in that week leading up to it, just all kinds of spiritual attacks right, to keep her from seeking God. Uh, there was another, uh, another sister who had to leave one of the things from the weekend early because she had these intense stomach pains. And, and so I checked in, just said, how you doing? And said, it's fine. And then Wednesday, uh, we were talking after prayer meeting, that it's weird because I ate the same thing that other people ate, um, but I think it, it must have been a spiritual thing. And I said, you know, I think it is. If it's, it's not just one or two people. Right? Someone whose back was in such pain that he couldn't go to worship. Another one who had abdominal cramps and couldn't make it to the rest of the weekend. Right? People whose children got sick. And I'm not saying there's a demon behind every bush, but I think we'd be naive to say that the spiritual warfare is not a real thing. 
It happens in a lot of different ways. How do you know it's the devil? We don't know for sure, but you can, unless they like start speaking in other things and they're demon possessed. But you can be pretty sure that the enemy is behind something when Jesus says in John 10, the enemy, he comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Tries to steal the blessings from your life. Tries to destroy something from your life. Tries to rob you of something. It's, it's one thing, you know, it's fine to be sick. That, that happens all the time. But when you're kept from the worship of God, then I think we have to understand that maybe the enemy is trying to keep you from getting something that God wants you to have. Because when revival comes, the enemy is often the first one to wake up because he doesn't want revival to happen. He wants to keep people blind. He wants to keep people shackled. And if we want to see revival, we want to see did you feel the darkness tremble? Then that means we need to be able to engage in the darkness, engage with the darkness. We have to be prepared for that. We have to be okay with that. To, to know that as we pray for revival, that there will be opposition and it's going to affect us. But we stand victorious in Christ. We pray against these things and we pray victoriously. We can rise above these things. But we have to understand that if we're longing for the revival to come, there's a cosmic conflict and the enemy is going to rise up to, uh, to take what's ours in order that he doesn't want to be vanquished. He's a, he's a sore loser. He's been defeated at Calvary, but he wants others to go down with him as well. And so here are these disciples, and they encounter this. And Peter, James, and John, here they are. They're in this great mountaintop moment, and as soon as they come down, they encounter this demon-possessed guy. For some of this is what my mentor used to say. Pastor I.J. used to say to me all the time. He said, you know what? Uh, when we're praying for revival, praying for retreat, praying for a, a worship service, praying for a mission trip, whatever it is, praying for something, we have to pray a lot before we get to that place. Pray a lot in advance in that place. When we get to that place, we have to pray a lot. We have to pray a lot. We have to pray a lot. And we do that, I think. But a lot of times what we don't do, he says, we have to pray a lot after that's done because the enemy will attack us in those ways after the fact to rob us of the blessings that were planted in our hearts. I talked to some people this week who said in the aftermath of R&R, they experienced some serious spiritual battling and oppression, like temptations, like questions, like fear, doubts. I don't want to go to church, things like that. I don't want to go to house church. I don't want to meet with the people of God. There's an enemy that wants to and delights in us withdrawing from the presence of God. And so here they come down, this demonic oppression and all these things happen. The disciples couldn't do anything about it. Are you willing, as you pray for long for revival, are you willing to engage in prayer, the spiritual battle? The disciples, the demons weren't afraid of them. And for whatever reason, they weren't afraid of them. I was reading uh, one of my favorite old preachers, Leonard Ravenhill, was reading a book that he wrote. And he says, you know who demons do know? This is in Acts chapter 19. There's this demon-possessed person, and there are these seven uh, sons of a Jewish priest, high priest named Siva. And so these demons are, are, are afflicting this man, and the seven sons of Siva try to cast out the demons, but the demons basically laugh at them. They beat them up, and these seven people go running away. And this is what the, de- the as the demons talk, they say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? Let me ask you a question. Would hell know who you are? Do your prayers shake the gates of hell? Do they engage in the spiritual battle so that demons run and flee at your prayers? Do they know who you are? Or do they say, I don't know who you are? You're no big deal. If you haven't encountered God, if you haven't come face to face with the devil this week, then it could be that it's because he doesn't consider you to be a threat to his kingdom. And maybe 
some of us are walking in the same direction as the devil. And so we haven't seen his face. There's a spiritual battle that's very real. And the demon said, we know who Paul is. Why do they know Paul? They either knew him because they beat him or because he beat them. You know what I'm saying? So Paul used to be in there. He used to be one of them, persecuting Christians, killing them. He was, he was, that was them. That was him. He was with them. And all of a sudden, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything was changed. His life was flipped right side up. And all of a sudden, hell feared him. You read about his encounters with demon-possessed people, setting them free, setting captives free. He was a man surrendered to the Lord Jesus. He was a man who wrote to the Corinthians, our battle, we, we don't wage war with carnal weapons, but with spiritual weapons. There's a spiritual battle. He wrote to the Ephesians. He said, put on the full armor of God because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Is it no wonder that hell knew who he was because he knew how to fight and engage in the spiritual battle. And he knew how to do that. He knew how to fight. And people said that when Paul died, all of hell took a day for vacation. And could there be anything greater for you to be known as in hell than he is identified with Jesus? She is identified with Jesus. There's a spiritual war. There's a spiritual battle. And we need to be able to engage in the fight. The last thing, when challenges come, when challenges come, look to the glorious one. Okay, look to the glorious one. So here, the disciples, the nine of them, not the three who went up, but the nine of them are there. Demon comes. Guy probably, presumably says, hey, can you do something about it? They try and cast the demons out, but they can't. And they're frustrated. You look at them, they're like, you know what? One dude there is pointing to the demon-possessed guy. There's a guy in the corner who's got his books. He's got his scrolls trying to figure out what to do. People are pointing up. They're like, he's the one that you need, but he's all the way up there. The disciples are frustrated. Why? Because it says early in the Gospels, they went on this short-term mission trip two by two, and they came back rejoicing, saying, the demons submit to us in your name. So here comes another demon, demon-possessed boy. And the disciples try and do something with it, but they can't. They're frustrated. Like, what do we do now? No, we used to be able to do this. This worked before. I just said this last time, and it worked, but now it's not working. What's going on? They're frustrated. They're disillusioned. They're questioning. They're wondering. Have you come back down from the mountain and you experience these things? You're questioning, you're wondering, the things that used to work don't work anymore. You face these challenges. Where do you go? What do you do when challenges come your way? What do you do? I think a lot of times I'm like the disciples. I lean on what I used to do. Well, this is what I did last time and this is how it worked. And a lot of times it doesn't work. Why? Is this a super demon here? It's not a super demon. It's just a regular, normal one but God is trying to teach the disciples a lesson here. That the power isn't within them. Do you, do you guys remember this uh, Volkswagen Passat commercial? It was like a couple years old where this, this boy is dressed up in this Darth Vader suit. Super cute. And he's walking through his hallway, marching to the, you know, dun, 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 dun. And he thinks he's got the force with him because he's got the Darth Vader suit on and and he's walking around the house, and he's like, he comes to a treadmill, and he's like, Pah! the treadmill doesn't turn on. And he goes to a dog who's just kind of sitting there with his uh, chin on his hands, and he looks at the dog, he's like, Pah! and the dog just like stares at him. And he goes to like all these different places, and, and then his mom's like, all right, boy, time to eat. And she makes toast and puts the toast, and it's like, you know, five feet away from him. So he looks at the toast, and he's like, Pah! and the toast doesn't move. And so mom looks at him, shakes her head, and pushes the toast. And then dad comes home in his Volkswagen Passat, right? And he runs outside, and his dad's like, hey. And he's like, no, I don't want to hug. And he goes to the car, and he's like, trying to get the car to start. Nothing happens. Does it a second time, and he's like so dejected. He's like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Third time, he's like, and his dad is watching this, and he starts the car with his remote ignition. And the car starts, and the boy is like, oh, my gosh. Because he thinks that he did that. And if he were to try that again, 
probably wouldn't work because the power isn't in him, it's in another. A lot of times, we think that the power lies within us. And when challenges come and we fall on our face, God's saying you need to look not to yourself, but look to the glorious one. So this week, like many of you, I experienced a lot of spiritual warfare and a lot of attack. Um, a lot of things that I talked about, I, I just, yeah, just a, a lot of things that were coming at me in a very strong, intense way. And a lot of times, you know, spiritual warfare, it happens to us, but you know that the enemy wants to do something when children are attacked. In fact, it says in Luke 9.38 that this was this man's only son. So it heightens the desperation there. Two times in Scripture, when the next generation was being attacked, do you remember when it was? When Moses, the deliverer of Israel, was about to rise up, Pharaoh said, let's kill all the boys, abort them all, the next generation being wiped out. When Jesus was about to rise up to be born in Bethlehem, Herod said, let's kill all of the baby boys. This is whenever God wants to move in a place, it's the generations to come that are being attacked. When adults are attacked, that's the present. When children are attacked, it's the present and the future. This is happening in Iraq, isn't it? Happening throughout the world. They don't fight fair because they realize that God's about to break forth in a mighty way, at least over there. And so when the generations are attacked, you know that God is about to move, and the enemy doesn't like that. And so here two nights ago, um, our daughter Manny went to bed uh, completely fine, uh, sleeping in bed next to her. About 2 in the morning, she woke up. She never wakes up in the middle of the night, but she woke up. She was crying. She said, I'm hurting. As I said, okay, you know, drink some water. She said, hold me. I held her, and I put her back down, and 4.30 in the morning, she woke up again. She said, everything is hurting. And so I touched her body, and it felt like it was on fire. And so we went and gave her some, some fever reducer, put her back into bed. She woke up at about 8 o'clock, and uh, she was feeling a little bit better, she said. But later, as the day went on, got worse and worse. She had two birthday parties and a swim lesson that day. Uh, we canceled everything for the day. I canceled everything on my schedule. I stayed at home. Um, Olive was home also. And there it got to about 3 o'clock, and she was uh, not in a good place. And so we took her temperature. It was 103. We took her to, uh, an, uh, to a, a clinic nearby, and uh, they checked her for strep. They asked her what's going on. She said, my head hurts. My stomach hurts. I'm coughing. She said her throat was red inside and, and all these things. And, and so they gave her some, some medicine, some Advil and some some Tylenol, um, and they gave it to her. And we said, how long, um, you know, she's, we have church tomorrow, is she able to go? And the doctor said, as long as she's feeling fine, she can go. But these things usually typically run about three to five days. And so Olive and I, as we're talking, we said, you know, we think that there's been, just as it has been all week, we feel like there's spiritual attack going on here. The doctor said she's not going to come to church, but we said we're going to pray. And we're going to pray. So we said, Manny, uh, we're going to pray for you. And we're going to pray and just laying hands on her, renouncing the enemy's lies, rebuking the work of the enemy, praying for her and, and all of these things. And throughout the day, throughout the night, all night, praying for her, telling our shepherds, we're going, yeah, she's going to come to church. If she doesn't come to church, it means Olive can't come to church. If Olive can't come to church, she's not worshiping with the community. This is what we need. Right? She doesn't come to church, Elise doesn't come to church. So we prayed in the name of Jesus, set her free from whatever is afflicting her. She woke up this morning, felt her. She felt fine. I said, Manny, how do you feel? She said, I feel good. I said, how's your head? I said, it feels good. How's your stomach? It feels good. How's your cough? It feels good. I said, do you feel like, do you want to try and go to church? She said, yes, I want to go to church. And I think she's here. I think she's here. Right? I think she's here because when challenges come, we have to understand that a lot of times when it's a spiritual battle being waged, right, we can't fight it using natural weapons. So a lot of times I would just give her medicine, and we gave her medicine definitely, but we felt like in the grand scheme of things, in light of all that God is doing, we felt like this was a spiritual attack 
on our daughter and on us as well. And so as we pray and as we believe that God wants to set her free, we believe he wants to do that for all of us. We don't, we don't need to live in defeat. Right? We shouldn't live in defeat as the people of God. And so they come down from the mountain. They say, why? Why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 29, this kind can come out only by prayer. And so they lift their eyes above themselves and fasten their gaze on the king of glory. See, the disciples needed to hear this because if they were going to be the ones, 11 people against an empire that wanted to chop off their heads, they needed to know that in their strength, they're not going to get far past Jerusalem. But in the power of God, they're going to change the world. They needed to know that. Peter needed to know this. Why? Because when Jesus said, listen, the king of glory is going to suffer, he said, no way, that's not going to happen. But just a little while later, Jesus would go to the cross. Why? It says here, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Why? And why did he say, don't tell anyone until after I've risen? Don't tell anyone about the glory until after I've risen. Why? Because Peter needed to know that in the economy of God, suffering and glory cannot be separated one from the other. The reason why, the only reason why, the only son of this man was able to be healed is because the only son of God climbed the other mountain. See, whenever we go up a mountain, there's a reason. Jesus climbed Mount Calvary, but he didn't climb there to stay there. He climbed so that he could come down and that he could break through the tomb to give life and to give victory. The reason he climbed the mountain was so that Satan could be defeated, so that we could be forgiven, so that his church would be victorious, so that we could live for the sake of his kingdom. We are not a defeated people. And we're not a defeated people. And the same thing, the same thing that God the Father says of his son, this is my son, by virtue of Jesus going up onto the mountain of Calvary, To everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, he blares through the heavens and into the earth the exact same thing over you and over me. He says, this is my son. This is my daughter. And the same authority that Jesus has is the authority that we have in his name. And so we go forth in that victory. I'm still praying for revival through our church, in our church through this place. And it's not a weekend. It's a movement that God wants to raise up a church to march through the land. And we need people to pray in order for this to happen. And as we do, the sign of the devil's move is a sign of God moving. And that we would not be afraid, that we would live in the victory, and that we would march through the land to claim victory in the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Just pray, uh, yeah, just a simple prayer. Lord, I want to I be famous in heaven, and I want to be feared in hell. Do you want to be? That your prayers would loosen the chains of hell in the lives of people. That your prayers would break the chains of addiction in the lives of people. That your prayers would lead the lost to come home. That through your prayers, young and old will return to Jesus. And when I sing that song, I think of people who once look like they walked with the Lord but have fallen away. I think of people when I think young and old return to Jesus. I'm going to pray that this would be, and I know that you will too. Let's be famous in heaven. Let's be known in hell in order that God's glory would be seen, would be revealed in us, through us. Let's pray for that. If you feel like there's been spiritual attack in your life, let's pray in the name of Jesus. I claim authority. I claim victory. I renounce the work of the enemy. And then pray against any of these things that have been afflicting you. I pray against those work of the enemy. 1 John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And we have victory in the name of Jesus. Let's pray for a few moments in that way.
Let's take a, a minute to pray as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to the Lord's Supper. Thanking God that He gave His Son. The only way that man's son could be saved was because God gave His one and only Son. The reason we have life because Jesus lost it for us. And in rising again, He gives us the promise of eternal life. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord God, help me to love you with all of my heart. Help me to bow before the cross, to realize the power that at the cross, the gates of hell was disarmed in order that I might live in freedom and in victory. So just pray, thanking the Lord God for victory, confessing any sin that we need to confess as we prepare to come to the table of God's grace. Let's pray for another half a minute. life, for allowing us to hear the whispers of your love through your word, through the gifts, through the community. Thank you for who you are, for all that you've done. Thank you that in Jesus we have victory, that in Jesus we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Thank you that in him we have access to the glorious one all of your splendor, laying that aside in order that we might become yours. Thank you for grace. We love you because you've loved us first. Help us to live in this victory. In Jesus' name we pray.